This podcast series is part of Hashtag Hour, a new grassroots project that brings together personal stories of all backgrounds to widen discussions on existing and important issues that are often silenced. Interested in the project or want to contribute to our work? Check out www.ourcontext.org. What does it mean to be a Vietnamese-American woman living in Europe? In this episode, Antu shares with us her stories of growing up in the United States and Virginia and her experiences of studying human rights and law in Europe. I'm Fumi, this is Hashigar Racism, and this is the story of Antu. Antu is Vietnamese-American who grew up in northern Virginia in the United States. Her mother came to the U.S. as a refugee and her father as a university student. Antu says that she led, quote-unquote, double lives. During the weekdays, she was at school in a predominantly white community. And during the weekends, she was engaged in many activities with the Vietnamese community, including Girl Scout and martial arts, for which she is grateful for today. So I was in a Vietnamese Girl Scout troop. So scouting became like a safe haven for a lot of Vietnamese American refugees when they came to the U.S. So actually, there's like clusters of troops throughout the U.S. And one of those clusters is based out of Northern Virginia. I'm not sure the amount of troops there are right now, but I would say that there are around 10 in Northern Virginia slash Maryland. And my troop always ranged around 40 people, more or less, give or take. And I started, well, my mom founded the troop before we were born. So officially I started when I was five, but I was going to meetings since I was like a newborn. And I did that until I was 18. So this was a combination of obviously what the stereotype is, selling Girl Scout cookies, but that's probably the least amount of things that we did on top of. So like we did Vietnamese cultural events. So that is New Year's in Vietnamese. And so for that, all of the troops would get together and we'd have big celebrations. There was line dancing. So I did line dancing as a kid. We also had to do traditional Vietnamese dances. I was not good at that, but had to do it. <laughs> yeah. And so like I learned a lot of Vietnamese history and culture through Girl Scouts. And I was so lucky to have like that tight knit, like they're my family. A lot of us knew each other since we were children and I still FaceTime them now. So like that was really good to have in contrast to my weekdays. And then I also did a type of Vietnamese martial arts. And that's very like, I think in Asian cultures, discipline is (laughs) really important. And that's definitely something I took away from that. At the time when I was doing martial arts, I didn't really appreciate it to its full extent. I actually very despised going to martial arts because like everybody else was doing soccer or like gymnastics and I had to be doing like this fighting kind of sport. But now I can really appreciate it because I feel safe when I go out and travel and stuff like that. And then I did that up until maybe I was like, I don't know the exact timeline, but I ended up getting a black belt in one martial arts. And then my dad switched us to jujitsu. And so we did that for a couple of years, too. And so because of that, I was really appreciative that like now 
I know how to defend myself. And I think that's so, so important because I think Asian women in particular are often fetishized and the amount of times I get catcalled or feel very, very unsafe on the streets is too much. And if I didn't have that, I think I would be paranoid and would never leave my room. Antu shares her first engagement with issues related to race and racism as a child. I'd say like one of my first interactions about race really tied into religion, actually. So I'm Buddhist. I'm actually Jodo Shin Buddhist, so I go to a Japanese temple. And that in itself is interesting because in the U.S., we went to a Vietnamese temple at first, but like everything was in Vietnamese. I didn't know what was going on. My Vietnamese is mediocre at best. But I think when you're really learning, you need to be able to understand what's happening. And I was really lucky in the sense that the Japanese Jodoshin temple had English Dharma school. So like I went to Dharma school growing up. But with that and being Buddhist in a majority Christian white area, I was often told, like, I remember distinctly when I was like four or five, like, you're going to hell. And I think that ties a lot to race and religion, because I don't know if the I think people would tell others to go to hell even if they're not white or if they are white, but it's more clear when you're not white. So like when they see an Asian, they sometimes assume that they're not Christian or you have the assumption that you are Christian. So I remember playing with neighbors and them telling me like, you're going to hell. And I didn't know what hell was, but I knew it wasn't a good thing. And I remember feeling horrible um running home and crying to my mom and she had to like explain to like me as a child being like it doesn't matter like who you are like for them to tell you that they're going to hell like that's not a nice thing but if you think of it in the broader picture mom's also going to hell too same with dad and the grandparents we're all Buddhists, so at least we're going together. And she's like, would you rather not be with us? And I was like, no, I'll go to hell with you. So like, that's something that I really had to learn growing up and also how to defend myself. I think not everybody has to go through that same experience, especially when you're the minority, you have to constantly justify yourself. So like, why are you Buddhist? What is Buddhism? Is it like just that fat guy? And I'm like, no. <laughs> And also like learning those things in school and seeing what was taught was sometimes wrong and having to correct your teachers. And sometimes that didn't go over too well, you know? So I think that was very defining when I was younger. And I probably didn't know exactly what race and racism was at a young age, but I felt it. Like we didn't necessarily talk about it. I think other persons of colors in the U.S., they really have to have those conversations. But I think a lot of, this is very broad, but Asian American communities tend to not talk about race until more recently. I'd say like, especially these past two years, it's opened up conversations. And like, when I got into high school and stuff like that, my family is a very debating family. So we started having more of those conversations, but I looked around at my peers and their families and they probably weren't having conversations on race as much. Antu reflects upon her time in high school and university. 
high school on to definitely tried to fit in at high school. And like that meant I was very what you call, I hate this term, but like whitewashed. So like I love food. So I know this sounds really weird, but I promise it will get back to the point. But like, and I love Vietnamese food and Asian food in general, but I would never bring that to the cafeteria because I don't want to stand out. And it's such a shame because I think especially Asian parents put so much care into like, I know like Japanese bento boxes, like those are like beautiful and like so delicious, but like, I didn't want my mom to like pack me anything that smelled or like wasn't bland basically. (laughs) So like it was packing salads to go to lunch or like a sandwich whereas no rice or I wouldn't ever bring chopsticks to school and now I think about it and being so far away from my parents and it's so sad (laughs) I missed out on all those years where I could have been embracing my culture and foods but like instead I was just trying to fit in and I think in itself isn't a horrible thing I think like that was my way of surviving and not wanting to be so different because I think especially in high school and middle school like those are the years where people aren't necessarily the nicest um I can't think of instances in those years where people were like blatantly racist to me I'm lucky that like at least there was a little bit of diversity in my friend group and so it wasn't like all white but like it was still majority white but like compared to some of my Vietnamese American friends, like they were definitely like, you're so whitewashed and stuff like that. And that's like, it feels like such a big insult because it's also a survival mechanism in my opinion. And when I got to university, I still had white friends. I had some, like I had a mixed group of friends, but what was interesting in university was we had a Vietnamese student association and I joined my first year but I really hated it. And like, I think it's a combination of like, some of those people I knew from scouting, Vietnamese scouting, but they weren't from my troop. So like, I knew them like, they were friends of a friend. But the community was so exclusive, that I felt like I couldn't even fit in there either. Because if I have like, these diverse group of friends versus only having Asian friends, like that was a dichotomy that like, it's not like they frowned upon it, but like if you had other plans, then they'd be like, why aren't you coming to our event? And so I really didn't get along. And I remember one of my first parties at one of the Asian organizations, like somebody was teaching someone how to say something racist in Vietnamese. And I was like, I don't want to be here. And I think that's something that the Asian community really needs to address. Because I think especially... I'll only speak on like Vietnamese Americans, like people are racist. And like, that's something that I've had to talk to my family about. Like, if they say something racist, I'm going to call you out on it. And we're going to have a debate. And I know it's not going to be comfortable. But I think that's something that you need to address. Because if we just continue these stereotypes and narratives, it's just going to create more divisions from people of color. And that's how white supremacy works. You divide and conquer. And so that was something that, but I also didn't want to tolerate it in my friend group. And if I had to choose my friends, those aren't going to be the people I choose to become friends with. 
I'd rather have a more diverse group of people. So that's what I ended up doing. At the University of Virginia, where Antu pursued her bachelor's, she experienced two turning points that would change the way she views racism. I double majored in global security and justice and African and African-American studies. So it's very uncommon for an Asian-American to major in African and African-American studies, at least at my university. I was often one of the only Asians in those classes. And in general, they're predominantly Black students, and rightfully so. Like, they were denied a lot of their history from primary and secondary schools. So it wasn't until university level where I really learned a lot about civil rights, and not just civil rights, but all of the great accomplishments from Black Americans. And for me, that was a really big turning point because I realized my education, even though it's known for being one of like the top in the U.S., especially going to a public school, there's so much I didn't know. And there's so much that I should have questioned. And I had already started doing that when like my teachers were talking about like Buddhism and like I was like, hmm, that sounds wrong. But I didn't realize how much was also just suppressed and hidden. And so I'm really glad that I went into African-American studies because that really taught me not just so much about human rights, but also like what was so messed up in our education and stuff like that. And then comes 2017. So I went to University of Virginia in Charlottesville. And in 2017, on August 11th and 12th, neo-Nazis and KKK members came and stormed my university. and. Heather Heyer, she was a young woman. She was murdered by these white terrorists. So that was a really big defining moment in my life. I wasn't physically there. This happened a week before class started, or maybe a week and a half before classes started. So I was still with family and hadn't returned to grounds yet. But I just remember it was all over the news and seeing like these white men storm your university with tiki torches and fully embracing racist ideology like idolizing Hitler like that was something that I wasn't surprised which is really sad because I know Charlottesville has a really dark history and same with my university University of Virginia was established by Thomas Jefferson built by slaves or enslaved laborers. And a lot of the beginning years, it wouldn't have been able to run without enslaved labor. And those ties have carried out throughout history. Like University of Virginia, a lot of the employees are still black staff. And there's still a lot of racist incidents that happen not just at the university, but oftentimes in the surrounding community. So I wasn't surprised in the sense that I knew there was history and that this can happen. But I think a lot of people were very, very shocked. And I mean, I was shocked to a certain extent, too. You don't think that your home is going to be where the next neo-Nazis are about to storm through. And so that just made me more passionate and to learn more about civil rights, human rights, why is the U.S. like this? And I learned through all of that, the U.S. isn't unique. 
it's just we have bigger level of diversity and so when that happens and like knowing our history it's they call it the melting pot but also <laughs> it's like a powder keg you know <laughs> so yeah that was another moment in my life where it was very I don't even know how to describe it it's just something that will always define how I view race and also how I view life After university, Anta moved to Geneva, Switzerland to pursue her Master in Human Rights and Law. She says she was not prepared for what she was going to experience. Moving here during COVID is one thing. So you have very unique experiences from that. Like we started off in person, then went online. And I think when you're having discussions with people from all over the world with very different backgrounds, sometimes that can get a little contentious. and. I had assumptions going into this program. I assumed that people were aware about racism and we would be around the same page, but boy was I wrong. And I would say this was around the US election. So like this is it's very heightened for me. I was really scared that Trump was going to win again. but we are having conversations in class and i'm not sure exactly what sparked this discussion but there were racist comments that were mentioned by my peers and we are a human rights program so i was very very shocked to hear that from my classmates and the professor's not saying anything and that was really disappointing to me because i had just gone through 4 years of undergrad in like african american studies where like The professor was never afraid to correct the student, especially if they're saying something racist. And I thought that was something that's really important. Whereas here the teacher just kind of sat back and on com- in combination like this was an online class. So there were messages being said in our not official group chat. So maybe like the professor couldn't necessarily control that either. So you have like that component of the digital life like you see every day like people are getting into arguments over Facebook but i was just really shocked and that took a big toll on me i ended up starting i started therapy right before that because i knew something was about to go wrong and i think going to therapy and getting psychosocial support is so so important when you're in these situations because it was really hard for me to unpack i not many people were going through this experience and even though i talked to like professors in my programs and directors there's only so much that they can do the person who's most affected is going to be me and other persons of color and when your program the hierarchy is predominantly white they're not going to understand the same experiences that you go through so that was actually really hard and i had a group project where i had to work very closely with somebody who had said something very offensive to me and how was i supposed to do that i made it through i was very cordial but i know that took such a great toll on me because through that period i i was really struggling and then right after it ended i was so happy and relieved that it was over but for me it was just like these people are also going into human rights so what ideology are they going to bring when they go into the workforce 
And that's something that was really concerning to me. And I had taken the time to talk individually to some classmates who maybe had only said like microaggressions or like, for example, like I remember somebody like commented on like the squint of my eyes. Um, yeah, that's not quite a microaggression. That's definitely <laughs> a racist comment, but like they didn't know better. And I'm very glad that I had that discussion with that individual because that person like understood what I was trying to say to her and ended up educating herself. But then there were other conversations that I had with other students that didn't go so well and like they didn't understand. And it's my firm belief um, in Imbram X. Kendi's book, he says, everybody's racist. And I 100% abide by that. I think we all grow up in a certain system where we are taught racist tendencies. And that's not necessarily our fault. What our responsibility is, is to unpack what we've learned and unlearn certain habits or ideology. And I think that's our responsibility. But people take it very offensively <laughs> if you were to ever call them out as being racist. But I think it's just the truth. Like, I grew up in a patriarchal society. Like, I have to unpack that, too. Same with sexism. A lot of different things. So it's not a bad thing. In, I mean, it is a bad thing in itself. But, like, on a personal level, it's something that we just, I think we have to work on. So, like, that's why I was willing to have those conversations with other individuals, especially in my program. But at a certain point, that also took a very big mental and emotional toll on me. And I realized I can't do this for everyone. It's also everyone's individual journey, and somebody can't do it for someone else. In addition to Switzerland, Antu also studied in Spain and the Netherlands. She reflects upon her interactions with people on issues related to race and racism in different places. It's different, obviously, in every country, but I would definitely say like there are similarities with Europe and then in contrast to the United States. I think that one of the big things is the levels of like critique that one can take. <laughs> so when it comes to talking about race, it's so much easier for me to talk about this in the United States than it is for me to talk about in Europe. Because some reason, white Europeans are, when I've had these conversations, they're so, so much more defensive over it. And maybe it's because they don't have these conversations as often. I think the United States, you're, you're kind of forced into those conversations. And if you avoid those conversations, that's a whole problem in itself. But like, you see the news every day, and there's a police shooting or people discriminating or hate crimes, you know? So like, that is something that's very, very prevalent. And I'm not sure what exactly is the difference, like how Europe can be so detached from like its colonizers history, especially like Western Europe. I get that Europe in itself isn't monolith. Like that's something that has been heavily debated against. They're like you from the United States, you just lump Europe together. But like, I'm not trying to say that either. I'm just saying in my experience, it's been really difficult to have some of these conversations. And part of it is, I think, an educational denial. And they have that in the U.S. too, don't get me wrong. They really try and suppress a lot of things. It wasn't until 
really Black Lives Matter is like that we even heard about June 19th. And so like, I think that they both use the same strategies, how it's placed out is different. And I think Europe has been more effective in suppressing dissent. Because like, you can't do that in the US, like, it's so in your face. And I think it's becoming more in your face in Europe now. Like, I remember just in the fall, like, there is a police in France who murdered a Black man in custody. So, like, I think these conversations are upcoming and Black Lives Matter really made the conversation global, especially this past couple of years. Ansu shares one aspect in her life where she is particularly conscious of her physical appearance. Dating. When a white boy approaches me, I'm like, do you have yellow fever? And then analyze from there. And like, that's the conversation I have with my friends all the time. Um, Whenever they're seeing a new guy, especially if they're white, it's like, who has he dated in the past? If he's only dated Asians, what is the reason? Is it like fetishization or like, maybe like that person grew up in Asia. So like, they've only dated Asians. Like, I don't know, but like, we got to get to the bottom of this because it's, feels so objectifying and dehumanizing when you are in that position like I could tell you about all the red flags like the first red flag is normally like if he's only dated Asians and like he doesn't know anything about Asian culture so like sometimes guys will be like no I just really appreciate Asian culture so that's why I'm dating an Asian person and like okay so what do you know about Asian culture like do you just eat the food if you just eat the food I don't count that as knowing anything about Asian culture do you know the politics do you know the history do you know customs like what do you mean (laughs) like that's something that I think is very I'm very suspicious I'm a very paranoid person when it comes to this and like it will get me into deep dives on going on like social media and I think that's like pros cons but like you can see who they follow. Is it only Asian women? And like from there, you can make educated guesses on what type of person. And yeah, maybe that's also stereotyping them. But I err on the side of caution. And I think that's like for me, dating is very, um, very hesitant because I just don't want to be seen as an object. But like I never question yellow fever if like, an Asian guy has only dated Asians, but I question it the most when it's a white person, you know? So that's also interesting. But like, I wouldn't question it from a POC as much, even if they've only dated Asian people, which is weird because like, it's the same thing, but it's not because the power dynamic, I think, is like the most important part when it comes to that stereotype. Antu reflects on the categorizations we make and rely on in our daily lives. We all have stereotypes. I don't think that that's going to be eliminated ever, but I think that we can check ourselves when we start thinking these ways. Like, I know some people only see me from being from the United States. And so, like, they assume, like, well, okay, normally because I present my, I look Asian, like, they won't question who I voted for as much, but like, One of the first questions, especially during the elections, is like, are you voting for Trump? And like, uh, I'm not. (laughs) Or like, 
they just assume I'm very, very capitalist and uphold ultimate nationality for the United States. So like that's a stereotype too. And I think that sometimes people themselves don't see it as negative, but it's something that's negative when you would tell me that, like, you're so American. I take that as an insult sometimes. <laughs> Actually, like 99% of the time, I'll take that as an insult. Not because I'm not proud from being from the United States, but because of all of the stereotypes you're attaching to that statement. And also, like, when you're saying American, are you talking about the United States of America or are you talking about the Americas? And that's something also that I had to really learn because before I always referred to myself as being American. But like one of my classmates actually came up and talked to me and she was like, yeah, like when you say American, like it erases the Americas because there's North and South America and like people from the Americas also can say that they are American. So why is the United States? the only ones who can say American. And I'm like, oh, you're right. But like, that's something I'm still like unpacking. So it's like, you're constantly having those conversations, especially when you live in Geneva. Like that's not something I would ever experience in the United States. And I think it was like very important. So like now I try to always refer to myself saying like I'm from the United States, but I will say I'm Vietnamese American because that is something that's like very important to my identity. And I haven't found a better way to say it. And I don't think I will. And there's just some battles that I'm like not going to go down. So I'd say for stereotypes, I think like in psychology, you have heuristics. For stereotypes, you have to like use something to like group people together. But we also need to make sure that we're not constantly relying on those thought processes and make sure you're constantly analyzing how you're perceiving the other person. Like you can go in being hesitant. I don't have a problem with that. Like nowadays, I think. I've become a lot more hesitant on like white males and like I know that's a stereotype but if a white male approaches me on the street who's like significantly older I need that stereotype also for safety and that doesn't mean they're going to attack me like don't get me wrong but like it's also just like warning signs and so I think a lot of people have those because it serves as a protection so I wouldn't say to eliminate it but also like don't be so closed off to saying, like, maybe this is actually a good human, you know. <laughs> Antu has the following to say on what she thinks it means to be anti-racist. So for me, to be anti-racist is a constant process of unlearning what you've been previously taught. I think this process never ends. And the first step is just recognition of, for me, everybody's racist and how do we unlearn that is it reading books listening to podcasts having conversations with people who don't think the same way as you I think that's so important and with different backgrounds not just by race I think when it comes to racism you really need to understand the different intersectionalities so like how does gender how does sexuality how do religion impact how we see race too so it's not just focusing on racism, because I think sometimes people really do have that focus. And I probably talk about racism more than I talk about some of these other topics, but you also have to look at through different lens and learn those lens and how that impacts how we perceive racism and how this impacts how we act. But yeah, that's how I would go about just unlearning. And it's so counterintuitive because it's not just unlearning, you're relearning. And sometimes you just get more confused. 
And that's okay too. And like, I think that there's going to be times when we make mistakes and that's okay. I'd say you make so many mistakes before you learn. And I just wish everybody would be open to learning because I think that's the biggest barrier. When you are so set in your ways, I think that's really hard to get past that. You can find more information about the White Supremacist Rally at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, as well as other articles, books, and videos on to recommend people to take a look at on racism on our website, www.ourcontext.org. You can also find the transcript of this episode on our website in English, French, German, and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Fumi and Hashigar Racism. See you in two weeks. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Introductory score by Luca Nioi. Other music by Pete Morse, Crescent Music, and Fugu Vibes. A big thank you to Antu for her time and energy in going down memory lane for us and sharing with us honest and valuable reflections on this issue.